it's a lonely position to be in, and that's what even people who work with me and uh, my team don't quite understand, because there are certain decisions you have to make. It is a lonely place to be in a place of leadership. The voice of Dr. Billy Graham, opening this special edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Since the death of this highly esteemed evangelist just a few days ago, countless tributes have been penned and voiced covering every aspect of the life and ministry of Dr. Graham. It's hard to imagine being able to add anything to what has been said. However, we are going to hear Billy Graham in his own words talk about his life. In 1997, I sat down with him in the studios of Moody Radio in Chicago for a conversation upon the release of his autobiography, Just As I Am. We were in the historic studios of WMBI. Dr. Graham, as we begin, I'm reminded that these radio studios uh, that we're in today play a part in the story of your ministry because it was these studios that you came to after you heard a young man sing on the radio. That's right. My wife and I lived uh, in Hinsdale, had a little church underground uh, in uh, Western Springs through uh, Moody, WMBI, we got to know a man by the name of George Beverly Shea. We listened to him sing many times. And uh, when Tory Johnson offered me a radio program called Songs in the Night, my little board of deacons was strongly opposed to it. But somehow we were able to overcome the objections. Then we thought about the program. And I knew of one man that I heard on the radio and one that if we could ever, I didn't think we could ever get him, but I was going to attempt it anyway. <laughs> so I came in. It took in those days nearly an hour to get from there. You came up Ogden Avenue mm-hmm. into Chicago. And I came in, and he was uh, in these studios conferring with, or I've forgotten now exactly what he was doing, but I knew that there were two or three people sitting out here And I always tease him. I had to get through all of his secretaries to get to him. And he always groans over that. I got in here somehow and shook his hand and introduced myself and told him what I would like. And he's always uh, reluctant to say no. You know, Bev is such a uh, quiet and gentle soul. He is. And when I told him what I thought he could do for the program and for our little community— uh, he finally said, all right, I'll come next Sunday night. So he and his wife came, and they came every Sunday night after that. And then uh, we became very close friends, and I told him when when the time came that I felt I was going into other work and evangelism, I said, why don't you come and go with me? And so he, he did, and he's been with me ever since. And history was made, as they say. Uh, You say in your autobiography that it seemed that as you were writing it and preparing it that you were recounting these things like they happened just yesterday. Uh, What is it like to take a look back at the sweep of your life this way, and what what impact did it have on you? Well, I had to have a lot of help in in writing the book because – but I did find that my wife had kept almost a diary Hmm. all of her life. She's – and her letters to her parents or – Letters that she and I had back and forth provided a great deal of information, and it brought back uh, to the both of us a great deal of um, a great many memories. And of course, the Chicagoland area 
was the center of a great deal of our activity because mm-hmm. we went to school at Wheaton. And we got married uh, as a result of our meeting out there. And then we went to Western Springs for the little church. And then Youth for Christ started, and I was asked to be the first uh, employee or the first evangelist. And uh, this was our headquarters. So Chicago was sort of the center of my life for a number of years. And I preached all over the area because one reason, and I shouldn't say this, but uh, we needed the money. (laughs) They'd give you $10 usually, you know, if you'd go and preach at a church or a banquet or something like that. And uh, they paid me $45 a week out at uh, Western Springs. And for Ruth and me, that wasn't quite enough. And uh, so we earned a little bit of money by me going around speaking. But, of course, my main motivation was Christ. Yes. I wanted to preach the gospel of Christ. You write towards the end of your book that uh, you say, I've often said that the first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven is ask, why me, Lord? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am, uh, because I I felt that I had very little ability. I had not... uh, finished my education, except an A-B degree. I wanted to go on to a seminary or to a graduate school. Because of the war and many other things, I was not able to do that. In the Youth for Christ, I found an avenue and an opening for evangelism on Saturday nights, as we tried to do. In fact, I spoke the first night at Orchestra Hall, where we held our first Youth for Christ meeting in Chicago. Was World War II over yet at this time? No, it was still going on. And uh, I was I, I was a chaplain. I'd already signed up for the chaplaincy, and I was uh, inducted as a first lieutenant. Then I wrote to the chief of chaplains and told him that I felt that I was reaching more young people and soldiers and so forth on Saturday nights in this Youth for Christ than I would be if I came into the chaplaincy. And he was a very warm kind of a person. I've looked at the correspondence back at the Pentagon and uh, he agreed, and he said, if this is what God wants you to do, I'd do what God wants me to do. Hmm. So I asked for an honorable discharge, which I received, and so I went uh, back to where we lived in Montreat, North Carolina, and from there, I began to travel throughout uh, the country and eventually the world. But let me take you back to the early years growing up on the farm uh, in North Carolina, and then you must have been a teenager when Dr. Mordecai Ham came to Charlotte and preached, and that impacted your life greatly because you accepted Christ there. What, do you remember what the message was, what he preached that night? No, not that particular night, but he, he preached something I had never heard about before, and that was the second coming of Christ, and that intrigued me. He talked about uh, Armageddon. He talked about uh, the various things that we know so well about prophecy. And I'd never heard such preaching. We went to a very small Associate Reformed Presbyterian church, and our minister didn't uh, talk along those lines. He was a post-millennialist and so forth. So Dr. Ham was used of God to speak Mm. to my heart. And one night I I remember that I was under deep conviction of sin. I was not a great sinner in the sense that I went out and did terrible things, but uh, I was a sinner by birth, and sin did my mother conceive me. And it was that type of conviction. And uh, I knew that I needed Christ. There was a void in my life. 
understand that you tried to avoid becoming convicted. You and Grady, your good friend from those childhood days, you actually volunteered for the choir so you wouldn't have to to look at Dr. Ham. That's right, because he would always point his finger right out in the audience and seem to uh, land it right on me from time to time. And I went up in the choir and sat down beside a young fellow by the name of Grady Wilson. He was up there. I don't know whether that was for the same reason, but that's where he was. He had a brother by the name of T.W., and T.W. was a little bit uh, hesitant that time about uh, spiritual things in comparison to Grady. In one way, it's hard for us to imagine that Billy Graham was ever a a door-to-door, fuller-brush salesman, but that is indeed what you did for what, a summer or more? summer, and then uh, we extended a little bit beyond wherever we could find somebody that was interested. Uh-huh. Now, was uh, was Grady mixed up in that as well? Grady and T.W. both. Oh, all right. I had been invited to by the Fullerbrush people mm-hmm. uh, to work for them that summer, but I didn't want to go out alone in South Carolina where we were supposed to go, so I called the two friends that I'd met at uh, the ham meeting, T.W. and Grady, if they would be interested. They finally said yes, and so they went with me, and we had a wonderful summer. Uh, We would uh, pray and read the Bible and uh, witness as best we could and uh, try to find a pretty girl to date. (laughs) (laughs) And make money, of course, uh, as young men. Well, we didn't make much money, (laughs) because in those days, uh, I think uh, I averaged maybe $50 a week. Hmm. I understand uh, from reading your autobiography that you feel like you learned a lot about prayer as a door-to-door salesman. I did. I prayed before every sales pitch that I made because sometimes there'd be a woman on the second floor who would throw down a a bucket of water on us. She didn't like salesmen coming to her. (laughs) Did that really happen? That really happened. (laughs) And then we would have some that uh, would owe us money at the end of the week when we took the brushes back to them and... They refused to pay, so we had things to pray about, and uh, God tested our faith in those days. You're listening to the voice of the late Dr. Billy Graham and an interview with me which took place in 1997 upon the release of his autobiography, Just As I Am. We spoke for an hour that day, and here's another portion of that first-person conversation. A good part and a very interesting part of your life story is the relationships that you've had through the years, uh, not only with common people, so to speak, but with world leaders and uh, American presidents. And uh, you say that the motivating factor for you has always been the opportunity to share Christ with everybody that you come in contact with. That's correct. That's still true today. That's still true today. And I've had the privilege of knowing 10 presidents. I knew all of them before they ever became president, except Truman. I didn't know him before he became president, but I knew all the others. But you did meet to pray with President Truman on one occasion. <laughs> I did, and made a terrible faux pas and uh, an embarrassment, I think, to the White House and the whole country and certainly to me. It was Nobody a... had briefed me on when you talk to a president or a person of that stature that you don't quote them afterward. When we got out from seeing the president, uh, there were four of us, uh, the press surrounded us and said, uh, did you pray with the president? And I said, yes, we did. So we weren't there. We didn't get any pictures of that, and we didn't hear it. 
could you go out on the lawn of the White House and, and repeat it? And I thought, well, there'd be no harm in that. I didn't know. And I went out there, and we got down on our knees and prayed, and that picture was on the front page all over the country the next day, much to our embarrassment. And what did the president think of that? He didn't like it. Uh, so I heard later, he didn't tell me, but about a month or two later, we heard that he, through a newspaper columnist, that uh, he said, Billy Graham is persona non grata at the White House any longer. Did you ever get a chance to talk with him about it? Oh, yes. Uh, years later, I got to know him in Independence. He was so warm and gracious, and they've asked me to do a thing for their library, mm-hmm. their Truman Library. Then the next president, of course, was Eisenhower. I got to know him in Paris through an acquaintance. And then when he became president, I saw him many times, got to really love him and, and, and know that he became a Christian. In the book, you talk about this careful step around politics. And sometimes you feel like you did okay, and other times you wish you had it to do over again. Talk about John Kennedy and, and uh, your relationship with John Kennedy, for instance. John Kennedy was a man with tremendous charisma, and uh, his father had been in Stuttgart, Germany, and had gone to one of our meetings. He had seen all these ads all over Stuttgart about these meetings. He decided to go. They saw this crowd of 60,000 people and hundreds responding at the invitation. And when he came home, he told his son, John, he said, John, or Jack, he said, you must get acquainted with him because with all this religious problem that you've had in this election, he could help you in that. The election was over now. And so he invited me to come to Florida to play golf with him. And in the clubhouse, we got into a very strong religious discussion. And on the way back from the uh, golf course to his home, to his father's home, uh, he uh, stopped the car and he said, I want to ask you a question. He said, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, does my church believe it? Speaking of the Catholic Church. And I said, yes. I said, they have it in their documents. And I said, uh, they're supposed to believe it. He said, well, why don't they preach it? I said, I don't know. (laughs) I wish we had time to talk about each and every president whom you detail your relationship with in, in the book. But let me just ask you about one, because I think this is one that uh, captured the, the attention of the American people. And of course, we're talking about Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Your relationship with Richard Nixon, and, and you preached his funeral, not well, too, he too was often one, long ago. I felt that he was one of the closest friends I had. I had known him for many years, had uh, participated in the, his mother's funeral before he became president. And he had gone forward to receive Christ when he was a boy uh, under the preaching of Paul Rader. And perhaps in the beginning, I took too much for granted as far as his spiritual life was concerned. But he was a Quaker, and he didn't say much about religion. Then uh, he ran for president. I was invited with some of my friends to the White House quite often. It was almost an open door all the time at the White House when he was president. Then he started having the church services on Sunday morning in the East Room, and I preached at those, some of them. But when Watergate came, I was shocked, I think, more than anyone, because I'd never heard him one time use a swear word, never in my presence. 
I never knew these things existed. There was a dark shadow there that I never understood afterward. And uh, I loved his family. Pat was one of the great first ladies that she hasn't been recognized as she will be in years to come. And he had two of the most precious daughters and two great son-in-laws. And they all believed in God and they believed in Christ. But uh, he held back as I look back. He never made a total public commitment. But one night he called late at night. It was about one o'clock in the morning. Now, this was before Watergate. And he said, Billy, he said, I want you to put Ruth on the phone. He thought a great deal of Ruth and Ruth's father. He said, I just want to tell both of you where I stand religiously. Hmm. And he talked about being born again, accepting Christ as his Savior. He said, I've done that. I believe if I died, I'm going to heaven. Well, subsequent events caused us to have, uh, we, we didn't know. But I talked to him after he left the White House on several occasions. He asked me to preach his funeral, uh, which I, of course, did, and preached uh, as straight a gospel as I know how to preach at that funeral, and we had the five living presidents sitting there. Dr. Graham, thinking of the presidents and the relationships that you've had, not only with presidents but with other world leaders through the years, you describe in your book uh, the special burden of leadership. I have to think that maybe you have felt this yourself at times. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, it's a lonely position to be in, and that's what even people who work with me and uh, my team don't quite understand. And no one can understand it till you're in that position. It's lonely because there are certain decisions you have to make. It is a lonely place to be in a place of leadership. And you cannot explain it to people who are not there. It's not lonely with me because I have the Lord. Mm. I have friends who get on their knees with me and pray. We pray every day. And um, I have family prayers at home. It's lonely also for the Christian in a place of leadership. He carries uh, problems and burdens that he, he really can't share with everybody, even some of his best friends. And that's true of uh, heads of organizations, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. Do you ever wish you could be just Bill Graham instead of Billy Graham? I'd give anything in the world if I could go back and just be in overalls and blue jeans and be on the farm. Hmm. But uh, when you are, have been on television and they've heard your voice on radio and so forth, uh, almost everybody recognizes you. Dr. Graham, as we close here, uh, no doubt there is someone listening to our conversation today that's, who's deeply troubled about some issue in their life. And I cannot close this conversation with Billy Graham without asking you to point to the one that you serve and, and uh, invite listeners to, to follow him as well. I don't think there's any problem that a person faces today that cannot be faced courageously and successfully if Christ is in your heart. Because the Holy Spirit, he has sent the Holy Spirit to direct us, to guide us, to comfort us, to give us peace, and to produce fruit of the Spirit. And that can happen to anyone who puts their trust and confidence in Christ. Well, how do you do that? First, you must recognize that you are a sinner. And the Bible says all have sinned. 
the Bible quotes David, the great king of Israel, as saying, In sin did my mother conceive me from conception on. We are born with the seed of sin. And that sin is breaking the law of God. And the penalty is death and judgment and hell. And while we may suffer natural death, the judgment and the hell come after death if uh, we don't receive Christ. But then he also loves us very much. And that's the message I'd like to leave with everyone, that God loves you. No matter what your problem, no matter what your sin, no matter how you have failed, God loves you. And God is willing to forgive you and change you and give you a new power and a new strength and a new outlook that you've never had before, if you will let him, because he will send the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and give you this uh, extra power, spiritual power. And then you must be willing to obey him and follow him. And that's the reason it's important to read the Bible, because people need to know that when you make a commitment to follow Christ, that's just the beginning. You have to have a lifetime. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. Uh, We're all imperfect, and we all are sinners, and we still need the cleansing blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us, continues to cleanse from all sin. And that's a great joy to me. Would you pray with us right now and help people make that decision? Yes, if you're listening right now and you have heard the fact that you need to repent of your sin and receive Christ as Savior by faith, I'm going to ask you to bow your head wherever you are. You don't even need to bow your head. You may be lying in bed or you may be driving down a highway. Just say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm willing to turn from my sins if you'll help me. And I turn by faith to Christ. I want him to come into my heart and forgive my sins and change my life. I turn my life over to you now. Now, Lord, you know some of the problems I face and will face more intensely after this decision. I need you, Lord, and I thank you for coming into my heart now. In Jesus' name, amen. And for Billy Graham, the best is yet to be. The best is yet to come. That's exactly right. My wife repeats that constantly. The best is yet to be. And Billy Graham now fully knows God's best, while home in heaven with Ruth. The first-person conversation you've just heard took place in 1997. My thanks to Moody Radio for providing the audio files from that day. Thanks as well to the Far East Broadcasting Company for supporting First Person so that we could bring you this program. FEBC takes Christ to the world through radio and new media until all have heard. Learn more about FEBC at febctoday.org. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. We'll be back next week with another story of living out the gospel here on First Person. First Person.